Sin Carriers, a West Side Fairy Tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. bullies found their skills no match for people ready and willing to fight back. Elam proved himself a competent killer, sniping from the rooftops under Mildover's direction, an act which brought to mind some partially buried memories. Sue and Ducky counterattacked the Pinkertons inside the security car, killing three men. Further up the train, Moira found herself discombobulated and under the influence of a force she can barely fight. While attempting to help her, Vasily was surprised by a Pinkerton and shot point-blank in the chest, only to rise soon after, uninjured, to dispatch the ruffian with extreme prejudice. They are soon joined by Sue and Ducky, who find a second Pinkerton nearby, cleanly decapitated and lying in a bloody heap at the base of one of the wood piles. Clinton, the Pinkerton headman, faced off against Gatto, but proved an unworthy opponent. After beating and humiliating him, Gatto sent Clinton's horse running with the man's heels still caught in the stirrups, Gatto's knife in his chest and a suggestion he find a man worthy of returning that knife to Gatto. Meanwhile, the Musk decided to use the distraction of the Pinkertons as cover to steal the entirety of the train's cargo for himself. He showed off his powerful personal trick, a noxious dust which kills and controls those who breathe it, turning them into speedy, mindless killing machines. Oliver took this as his sign to leave, and did so, going so far as to carry the hapless Mr. Vaught on his back while fleeing for the train. Today, our travelers recover from the aftermath of the Pinkerton attack and discover whether the few revelations about their past might hurt relations with the rest of the crew. Conversations are had amongst the drivers, the security personnel, and the VIPs about what's to come as the bodies of the Pinkertons killed aboard the train are unceremoniously dumped in the desert. And all the while, the mysterious woodpile seem to exert their influence all the more over certain members of the crew. Will the revelations about the sordid pasts of the security crew become a growing divide between them? Or will they come together in spite of them? Will certain travelers continue resisting the draw of the woodpiles? Or are some soon to give in to their alluring call? And what could lie in wait for our travelers up the tracks that could possibly be worse than what they've already experienced? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the sixth episode of Sin Carriers, Tension. A scream built up inside Elon, bubbling and growing until he was shouting with his hands in the air and his face to the purple sky. The horse was alive, alive between his legs, an absolute force shooting him forward like a rocket. He felt every hoofbeat, every rhythmic contraction of muscle. Fast wasn't a word that mattered here. Trains were fast, sure, but there was nothing here between him and the speed. No walls, no windows, nothing. Elam spread his arms to the night and emptied his lungs again and again. A few lengths ahead and beside him, the priest turned and gave him a small half-smile. The boy was a decent rider in his estimation 
despite it being his first time in the saddle. Killing had pushed the boy beyond fear into the red halls of violence. Now he was slowly returning to reality, and all that emotion was draining free, leaving only the sugar-sweet ecstasy of being alive. The horse, perhaps, could feel that, and was being as accommodating as it could. They rode through a rocky pass at the edge of a forest and up a steep grade. From there, the land fell away from them, flat and coarse and bright in its plainness. The priest held up a hand and gestured for Elam to follow. The boy did his best to course-correct his animal, and then they were cresting a steep ridge. The horses stamping and leaping over scrub and loose, rocking boulders the size and shape of flattened bowling balls. The train's going that way! Elam shouted to the priest. The older man nodded, his finger pointing out over the flat lands and arching in a crescent until he was looking crossways down his arm. He tapped the air. You see all that out there? He asked of the low, jagged ridges ahead of them. Yeah, Elam said, not quite following. This is mainlands now, and that's water up ahead, the priest said. Probably, I'd say, a big, flat river and full from the rain. Not the sort of thing you'd build over in any case. Yeah. He kicked his horse and circled up to the crest of the ridge. You can tell by all that green popping up, if you can't see the river itself, by the way. Train won't run that way, is what I'm getting at. Though it will drive mighty close and then hook that way. Why's that? Because it's flatter out there by the river? Elam asked. His horse was skittish about the crest, and so stamped over to a flatter spot to huff and maul over a rooty bush. It tasted the dry, flowerless stalks and thought better of it. The priest nodded. Yep, he said. Trains are a man's version of a river. Path of least resistance is the general thought, except when it ain't. He nodded down a goat path, moving through the bush southward of where they stood. We head down this way, keep these beasties at a good clip, and then we'll hop on the train. Just like that, Elam muttered, patting his horse's neck. It wasn't his horse, not really, but if the boy lived an entire lifetime, you'd never convince him of that truth. This was a night of firsts and forevers, the horse a rare invigoration. Time might never come again for such feelings. If the priest hadn't been around, he was sure the boy would have laid down over the horse's great, shaggy black neck and just slept. Just like that. The priest repeated, feeling his own sort of way and not wanting the boy to see. He tipped the black brim of his hat low and took a breath before snapping the reins and putting the cobalt blue sky over the unrisen sun on his left shoulder. Better we be before God as true sinners and false saints, he thought. And for the rest of that long, lovely trip through the Badlands, he tried not to think again. The rider didn't mind the sun, but didn't much care for it either. He hated it, after a fashion, if only because it defied his reach. There was no heart in the sun that he could find and pierce. Nothing of it to wear. It fed what fed him, 
drew their bodies from their huts and hovels to dance in its radiation and then slink back into their darkling caves. That which lived. That which was not him. He tipped his hat and watched the things creeping over the ground between him and the buildings. They were mindless, insectile. Their twitching, erratic movements drew to mind the image of a young man's arm flexing mindlessly on the ground after he'd cut it off. The piece, rendered from the whole, failed to make something of itself once parted. This was the same. He looked to the shuddering boards of the furthest building. Faint, glittering powder poured from every crack and crevice, dusting the ground. Its color reminded him of lime, sulfur clouds, and smoking grape leaves. The smell wasn't too far off, though it was light. Cloying. A woman's perfume on a cheating man. The rider licked his teeth beneath Kellen's dead skin mask and parted his lips to whistle. The tune was the same atonal nothing as when he'd first heard it on the feathered wings of stone arrows fluttering above his face. Many years had passed since then, but the song remained. One of the creeping things turned its eyeless face on the rider and screamed at him, starting into the same loping, four-legged charge as a bear. He met it with his spear, which licked up and out of his hand into the heart of the thing. It lived half a minute before something inside it ruptured, gave, and spilled down the shaft toward his hand. There was nothing in the kill. No food for his soul. The beast was empty. Worthless. He grunted and flicked the thing into the ground. Its bones crunched and the buildings around him burst open. A hundred or more of the eyeless, hissing creatures bounded at him. Some still had enough left of themselves to level guns in his direction. He kicked his horse and reared and twisted, giving him enough momentum to pitch his spear into the huffing, wheezing building across the lot. Every sunken, yellow pit of an eye widened and a lot of them fell at once, gripping their legs and howling. Behind Kellen's lifeless face, the rider's eyes glittered. He raised his hand and called the spear back to him. You can come easy or otherwise, the rider said. But you will come. He realized only a moment too late that he'd focused too much on pulling the spear back. The feel of the bite was distracting like that, and this was a big fish for way out here in the country. One of the creatures popped up with a sixer and fired around into the rider's face from only a few yards away. The bullet caught him in the chin, knocking him off his horse. The beast made a run for it, charging out all of 30 yards before the mysteries holding it together gave out and its rotting body unraveled like a sweater. The rider knelt, spat chunks of the bullet onto the ground, and let the meat off the hook. His spear, free now of whoever was hiding in that wheezing building ahead of him, pushed itself again from the flesh of his palm. The thing that had shot him sauntered over to put another round in the back of his skull, and he swiped its head apart at the ears. The hammer fell on a dry chamber, But the headless automaton continued to pull the trigger again and again as it fell on its back and aimed at the sky. All right, then, the rider said. A dozen or so of the clever, gray-suited things jumped in front of him, leveling guns at his head. He stood, licking his teeth. 
Missions aside, this was a welcome distraction. The things all raised their guns and put their left hands in the air, palm forward. The rider watched a moment longer and then stabbed his spear into the ground. Hold on there, a man's voice called from behind the pack. <coughs> I'm not in the mood for this right now. The thing stepped aside and a man in tattered suit clothes limped toward the rider. He still stayed well behind his front line, leaning on a small, naked male with burned-out eyes. <sighs> it's been a long fucking night, the man said. The rider said nothing, merely stood with his hands slack at his sides, waiting for the man to draw. The man got the message in that body language and decided to talk around it. <coughs> What's your name? He asked. The rider just stared at him. Forgot it, he said after a while. Wouldn't know it if I heard it. What are you doing out here? The man asked. You aren't gonna tell me your name? Elias Dunbarton, the man said. <laughs> the rider replied. That means nothing to you? Dunbarton asked. Shut it. How about Blackwell? Dunbarton asked, hesitating to say the name out loud. The rider grinned, and Dunbarton could see the teeth glittering behind the tasteless mask. Having two faces watch him was unsettling. The mask seemed to move with the rider's face at times, though he couldn't tell if the effect was real or just his imagination. Yeah, the rider said. I've heard it before. Then why are you here? Dunbarton asked. Why did you stab me with your... Is that a fucking spear? The rider gave his weapon an appraising look and nodded. Good eyes on you, boy, he said, pitching a finger up at the creatures. Can't say the same about them, though. Dunbarton glared and took a deep breath, held it. Why are you out here? Dunbarton asked. <laughs> Work, the rider said. He tucked his fingers into the pocket of his coat and drew out a heavy piece of cardstock. Dunbarton took an unsteady step backward when he saw what the thing was. A daguerreotype of some eastern city on a postcard. He almost breathed a sigh of relief when the rider flipped it over and showed the rust-red thumbprint on the back of the thing. Modern convenience, the rider said, tucking the thing away. First I ever took was on a flat river stone. Carried it nine months until I got the touch off him. Of course, I didn't have a horse then either. So you're not after Blackwell's? No, nope. but I know all about that. The rider said. Found one back the way I come. Wasn't talkative. Like you. Dunbarton backed up behind his little dead man posse. Their scooped eyes caught the hollow blue light of the rising sun and did nothing with it. You got two in there, right? He took a step closer, adjusting his thumb on the spear. 
I can smell them. Dunbarton said nothing, just breathed heavily and darted his eyes around the yard. Other days he would have just run, but the cargo was worth too much. The rider chuckled. <laughs> I don't want what you got, he said. Blackwell. He lifted Kellen's chin and spit. You your beans get a taste of power and think you're running the whole damn show. Puppies. <clears throat> the lot of you. Then go, Dunbarton said. I think we've been talking long enough. <clears throat> Not yet, the rider said. I got my own questions. Like? Where's that thing going? Dunbarton's eyes narrowed. Why would I know? He asked. The rider raised the rim of his hat and for a moment, Dunbarton could see through the empty slits of Kellen's face to the real eyes beneath. He shuddered. East, obviously. Dunbarton said. Two or three more stops, I think, and then they're done with the... the interesting cargo. After that, it's up to Pittsburgh, where Gulliver lives. Gulliver Lobe? The rider asked. Dunbarton glared at him. Do you know everybody but me? He asked. The rider chuckled. You want that train bad, don't you? The rider asked. Dunbarton said nothing, and the rider nodded. Why don't you tag along with me then? You look after Tafala, and I'd rather know what you're up to if we're coursing the same rabbits. Dunbarton licked his lips and looked over the buildings behind him. In minutes, he could bury the lot of it in the mines below and then come back and have his dig boys bring it up in a few days. He nodded. You won't try to dupe me and get what's mine. Dunbarton commanded rather than asked. The rider shook his head. Dunbarton reached out a hand. Swear it and I'll help you. Front to back. All on that train's yours. Save what I'm looking for. <clears throat> and all the blood and bone. That's staying in my way of getting it. The rider said, taking Dunbarton's hand. No warmth passed between them when they shook. Clinton watched the changing colors of the sky through his long night of dying. His horse had lamed itself, sprinting away from the madness at the mining camp. Now it was dragging him inch by inch to their shared final destination. It was something of an unholy miracle that he was alive at all. That insane goddamn Mexican had done him in but good. He'd watch them all drive past, too, in their goddamn train. Even buried in the bushes, his fucking horse had dragged him inside, 
he'd still known it wasn't his people driving east without him. The ragtag degenerates had beaten them. For now, at least. The modern world didn't care much for distance. He'd telegraphed ahead to St. Louis that the train was on its way there days earlier. Even if they made every delivery, the entire central office would be waiting for them with shotguns and little in the way of forgiveness. Not that it mattered much to him. Life insurance was like that, he figured. Even though it was the same sort of thing he'd done a thousand times, setting up fail-safes for if the job went bad, knowing now that it'd actually be put to use didn't give him an ounce of joy. He realized, in fact, that he'd much rather have just failed miserably and lived. There was money, 7,000-some-odd dollars, that he'd set away for retirement in a grimy little bank in Phoenix, Arizona, his retirement fund. Money to go to Panama and fuck and drink until he spent himself short or died. Now he'd somehow managed to do both and not see one good fucking night come of it. He'd even seen the beach after arriving on the coast, through the windows of their office maybe a mile up the street. Clinton had told himself, nah, now isn't the time to be distracted by all that. God damn it, he muttered to himself as the horse dragged him further down the rails. The sun was rising, and for some reason he couldn't just die. It was like trying to fall asleep and not being able to, only worse. Maybe his soul knew he was going to hell and wanted to stave off that mess as long as it could. There is one, somebody said. The voice was rough and ragged. Clinton blinked and tried to see the face looking down at him, but couldn't. Then something was wriggling around at his shoulder and he screamed with an energy he thought lost him. The man had pulled the Mexican's knife out of his shoulder. Look at that. He sounded impressed. You give him that back for me. Clinton said. The man knelt over him and the face Clinton saw made him seize with fear. He was in hell or at least this thing was going to take him there. It saw his fear and grinned. Clinton saw its teeth only looked flat and human when the mouth was mostly closed. What'll you give me? The man-thing asked. What do you want? Clinton asked. He wished he'd died earlier instead of having to talk to this thing. The flap of leather it wore like a mask was some other man's face. He wondered if that's what it would ask of him. His face. Your horse. It asked. Clinton nodded, if only to get it to leave him alone. Even this close to death, the other possibility had him shook. It gathered his limp hand off the ground and shook it. Pleasure doing business with you, Montgomery Clinton. Another man took the thing's place over Clinton, smelling like old socks and turpentine. He grimaced, looking Clinton over as the thing cut his boots off the horse's saddle and took a deep breath. Then the man's lips were over Clinton's mouth, and the last thing the Pinkerton heard 
was his horse screaming into the dawn. Moira could barely stand and so was fairly glad when the boy, Ducky, offered her his arm. He didn't jump to the task, actually, but was put to it by a gruff insistence on Sue's part. Moira had never in her life been envious of the rough, working women like Sue. Prep school girls would remark fondly about working women and their propensity for the sort of fun they were not allowed to have as debutantes but that was all rakish, bodice-ripping garbage and idle talk. Moira had grown up around working-class people, forced into interactions with them at an early age, thanks to her father's constant running around under Uncle Gulliver's orders. They were all more fantastical than the people she'd grown up around, easier to tell apart for sure. The lot of them were scarred or hurt or dressed in some specific way for some specific thing all the time. Purpose is what it was. The people always had some sort of purpose. Even the most base, homeless beggars had a way about them. They understood themselves, as her contemporaries never really did. Her peers were always afloat on dreams and delusions of futures that, once attained, would wipe away even the most trace marks of individuality. They cloaked themselves in importance, but all that was just a dressing gown. All of her father's contemporaries were fat dragons nested on piles of gold, useless save for their table scrappery and the hypnosis in which they drowned their thousands of money-hungry sycophants. People without purpose, beyond dreams of power and their own filter-feeder accumulations. The woman, Sue, lived outside that. She had purpose as a woman that existed outside of what typified their gender. Not that she didn't have good looks. If Moyer was given a few hours, a fresh sponge, and a good 80 buckets of water, she could fix the woman into something approaching striking. But that would be like draping silk over a bonfire. Whatever it was that made this woman would burn through in a heartbeat. Moira could see it in her eyes. They were the opposite of what Moira had been taught in her etiquette and manners classes at prep school. A woman should be open and unassuming in her expressions, they had told her, which meant to keep your eyes wide and attentive on whomever was speaking. Men especially needed constant attention lest their egos become bruised. Sue had narrow, dark eyes that were always in motion save when some thought struck her. Then she would slow in her movements the sway of her neck becoming solid and unmoving for a long few seconds until the moment passed. In this, she reminded Moira of a peregrine falcon that had been kept on the grounds of her prep school. The campus, in Scotland, had once been a monastery and still maintained an active muse in which the locals kept falcons. The peregrine had been beautiful and much shorter than its companions in the muse. Its eyes were cold and inquisitive, curious, there had been something deeper to it than just killing and eating. It seemed to exist beyond its simple purpose. And perhaps that was what Moira found so alluring in this odd, almost abusively coarse woman. She's an outlaw. 
Moira thought, watching Sue open the door to the central storage car. She heard a muffled bit of worrying and then saw a young man extricating himself from behind a tall stack of crates beside the right bulkhead. She recognized him as the Blackwell typewriter salesman who'd come aboard shortly before they left, though that was where their acquaintance ended. He worried at his hair and took several deep breaths as Sue led him to sit on one of the Blackwell crates. She gestured for Ducky to have Moira do the same. Goddamn, they got you, huh? Sue asked. It's a fairly severe laceration, Moira answered. Or so Mr. Tavares said. His gloved hands had been warm on her cheeks when he inspected her, and she had smelled gun smoke on his jacket sleeve. Now he was off fetching his sewing kit and trying to find out what, if anything, might be done about getting her to a proper hospital. Nothing was the answer, she knew. Her father loved her, but he wouldn't alter Uncle Gulliver's travel arrangements for them unless she were actually dying. Probably not even then. Hey, Dawn, Sue asked, softening into a more personable voice. Moira opened her mouth to respond, but the Blackwell typewriter's boy answered instead. I'm <laughs> fine, I think, he said. Moira realized he was who Sue was talking to and might have blushed if she had any blood left in her face to do so. Is it uh, over? Yeah, it's over, Sue said in a soft voice, resting her hand on the man's shoulder. Hey, why don't you tell me about that uh, typewriter you got there again? The salesman's eyes lit up and he started carefully extolling the virtues of the Blackwell automatic typewriter. Ducky sighed and crossed his arms, taking a seat on burlap rice sacks. Why are you being so nice to him? Ducky asked. Moira heard something shaky in his voice. And what'd he do? Hide in here the whole time? Suppose so, Sue said, smiling at the typewriter boy. His name was Vicky, Moira suddenly remembered, and urging him to continue. So what, I, I killed two men and he just gets to sit there rattling things off like that? Like some damn idiot? Ducky's voice was rising. His heel thumped a rhythm on the ground that kicked up dust and tidy little clouds. I think that's bullshit! Bullshit! Sue turned to him and pointed at his crotch. Everybody in the cab saw the wet trail leading down to his boot a second too late for him to hide it, though he did try. Shot two men. Pissed yourself for the inconvenience of it. Sue chided him, laughing. Vicky laughed along politely, keeping his head down while he did so and never stopping in his rhythmic recitation of the Blackwell typewriter's catalog. Ducky looked down at his crotch and started laughing as well shaking his head and trying to hold down his tapping leg. God damn it, my mamaw was right, he said in a soft voice. He seemed to hear Moira laughing first and looked up at her. What the hell are you laughing at? You look like a whip newsboy, woman. Moira had no idea what that meant, and for whatever reason, this doubled her over fully until the pressure of laughing made her hold the wound in her face and hiss. The pain was bad enough she had to squint to see. Blood warmed her fingers through the bandage. They, uh, got you pretty bad, huh? Ducky asked in a soft voice. Yeah, Moira said. I can't see it, but it feels swollen. Looks like a smashed open melon, 
Ducky offered. Moira bit her lip and looked at the ground. Oh, uh, I didn't mean it like that. It's just, you're, uh, plenty pretty, miss. Even if you get a scar, I think you'd still be a beautiful lady. Moira gave the heavy-handed compliment an unimpressed, if somewhat thankful, look. And Ducky cleared his throat and scratched the back of his head. He turned in the direction of the security car. Sue chuckled to herself. Well, um, I'm gonna go change out of these pants, I guess, he said, standing. He paused, looking down at the floor by his feet. Shit. What? Moira asked. I didn't bring any goddamn clothes with me, he said in a low voice. Moira wanted to ask why not, but for some reason this revelation didn't strike either Sue or Vicky as odd. Y- y- you can borrow a pair of my pants, Vicky said. Moira could feel the effort it took the young man to break away from his recitation of the manual. Yeah? Ducky asked. He seemed beyond surprised at this offer, but Vicky just nodded. It's no problem, he said. I- I've got several, though. You should take the brown canvas work pants, if you don't mind. They're uh, sturdy, and the only ones I-, I don't have a suit jacket for. Well, all right then, Ducky said. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, Vicky, Ducky, Ducky, Vicky, Vicky said, clearly trying to restrain that outburst. It's, I'm sorry for that, it's no problem. Ducky, clearly not knowing how to respond, just left. Why do you do that? Sue asked Vicky. The young man buried his chin in his chest and reduced the volume of his litany to a mumble. Sue squeezed his shoulder. You ain't gotta say, I'm just curious, is all. He nodded and talked faster, forcing himself to finish. It's, uh, I- I'm simple, I guess, he replied when he was done. And at least a, a little bit. When I was a child, my parents had a priest over all the time to bother me about things I did in private because they were sure I was doing something to hurt myself. Then doctors did the same things, basically. Uh, my father told me I'm retarded because of my mother's uncle, who was a... Uh, I, I don't know, the same way. Uh, I'm sorry if it bothers you. I, I don't mean to do it. I, I really, really don't want to do it, but I, I can't help it. A lot of things men say they can't help doing. That's the first time I've ever seen it be the case. Sue said. You're all right with me, Vicky, okay? He smiled at her. Okay, he said. The door behind them opened and Mr. Tavarish entered with a teapot and his little kit bag. I am sorry it took me so long, he replied. I mixed some hot water from the kettle with salt to clean your cut. He set the bag down and pulled out some cloth and a sewing kit along with a set of tweezers he held over a light for a few seconds before using. Why not liquor? Sue asked. Pour some alcohol or something, that'll get it clean. Mr. Tavares sighed and tested the tweezers against the back of his hand before prodding about in Moira's wound. It stung, badly, but she did her best to hold still. British medicine, Mr. Tavares muttered under his breath. Pour alcohol on everything. Doctors don't need to clean their hands. Leave wounds to dry in fresh air. Bleed out sickness with a knife. He looked like he wanted to spit. I swear to you, if every contributor to the Lancet was taken out in the streets and shot, 
the world would have rid itself of disease a hundred years ago. He continued to grumble to himself as he dressed Moira's wounds, making it readily apparent that his gripe with this magazine was personal. She didn't inquire further, given he was soon bending and threading a needle he intended to use on her face. Hola! The enormous, lanky Mexican said as he came into the cabin and looked around. Sue and Vicky each replied in greeting, but he didn't seem to notice. Moira watched him, glad of the distraction from the pain in her face, as he paced around and then laid out on the rice sacks where Ducky had been sitting. In that position, the poncho on his shoulders fell away to reveal a complicated set of leather suspenders covered in fat, bladed knife scabbards. At least half of the knives were gone, Moira noted. What happened to your face? He asked her without looking. His straw hat was in tatters and Moira could see his eyes wandering over the ceiling and then his own fingernails as he stretched and raised his hands. His body was long enough that his legs took up the next two crates past the stack of rice. I... uh, A man hit me with his gun, Moira said. She was digging her nails into her palms so hard she was worried she might draw blood. That is a shame, Gato said, not looking at her. I enjoyed your face. It was nice to look at. He paused. It will be nice again soon enough. You are young. If you ate plenty of chicken, it will be good for your skin. Sue snorted. Chicken, huh? She asked. Most certainly, the man replied. He'd drawn one of his knives and started flicking it into the air in front of his face. There was nothing threatening in the act. Moira could tell he was just bored. Is that some sort of Mexican folk medicine? Moira asked. The man made a curious expression and caught the blade between the fingers of his hand, not using his thumb. He spun to look at her, flicking the knife around and using it to adjust his hat higher over his eyes. Why do you say Mexican? He asked, rolling the knife in a dazzling spin and then rocking his hip to slide it away. You? You think I am Mexican? Or are you just asking because all my clothes are from there? Suddenly embarrassed with herself, Moira politely cleared her throat and looked at the ground. I am old, he said. No, sorry. I am from Condado de Castilla, in what you would call Spain. Ah, was all Moira could say, though Mr. Tavares seemed to perk up at the mention of the man's homeland. You are from Spain, you mean? He asked, not hesitating a moment in his work on Moira's face. Gato looked ready to spit. What is a Spain, even? Gato asked. No, I am from Condado de Castilla. He looked back to Moira. You can call me Castellano if you need to, but I prefer my name. Gato. Please don't. Do not call me fucking Spanish. In el nombre de Jesucristo. Thank you. Of, of course, Mr. Gato. Moira replied. Mr. Tavarish finished a moment later and instructed Moira on the care of her new wound. It was like having a puppy forced on her she didn't want. But she sighed and nodded along until he smiled, stood, and excused himself to clean his instruments. Ducky returned a short time later, sporting an incredibly oversized pair of pants and smelling like soap. Hey, Vicky, he said. Uh, 
thanks for the pants. I saw you had some soap, so I washed up too. The typewriter salesman gave him a wry grin. Well, so long as my pants don't smell like pee, I guess it's fine, he said. Ducky laughed, and then they were all laughing, save Gatto, who quietly played with his knives and smiled beneath the soft, dark shadows of his sombrero. Garvey slept when no others could, dreaming of red skies and black tides. Salt sea air filled him skull to navel, a drink of wind carried by sun-rotted sailcloth and the rust-flake sharpness of old chain. Shackles dug into the seared flesh of his arms and ankles, holding him tight against the forest of splinters sinking into his flesh. He dared not move for fear the birds might grow less craven and help themselves to him. They danced and spun, lulling him to sleep, and he snapped awake in the cold, cramped guts of the train. Lord Almighty! Miskel shouted as Garvey sat up straight in his rack. The younger man was slicked up to his elbows in blood. Not thickly, not as though he'd done the deed, but like a butcher gets prepping a morning's roast. Garvey licked his lips and glared at the young man who shook his head and stormed out the sleeping carriage. Garvey watched him go and then laid back down, fully intent on sleeping out the morning, but froze when his eyes landed on Culver Penbrook in the rack across from him. Culver wasn't much more than a boy. In his early twenties at the latest, the lad possessed a curiosity about things Garvey found reprehensible. He was a poker and a prodder, forever interested in that business which was not his, but he felt someday might be. His constant excuse was always that he wanted to learn in order to someday do. This knot, that lash, how the horses liked to be brushed, how to best put up the carriage tackle. Garvey knew better though. The boy had no less expertise in anything than any other driver that might be hired on a job such as this. His hands were nimble with rope and tackle alike, and he could quell an unsteady horse with just words and a touch. No, he always knew what he was asking after. His true intention was the second question. Why did you choose that knot? How did you come about this job? When did you sign on to this trip? His curiosity was professional and ingratiating a trick that only irritated Garvey for how common it was to his own interests. Bears and wolves dragged women off the streets. A man had them come willingly to the den. And getting two mouths moving in time was the surest way to build that first little bridge, the one from which he'd eventually hang them. Seeing his own tricks put to use against him was fully irritating, like having somebody open your pockets and point out where you keep your keys and wallet. That was done now, however. The thing looking at him from the opposite bed had been Culver Penbrook, but was no longer. The air told Garvey this. 
It tasted like the brine-soaked breeze of his dreams. These new dreams of the swamp, and the ship floating ever closer between the far atolls that never existed beside his home. This revenant saucer-wide eyes laid into Garvey's own. They were blind, Cheshire moons, unwilling to sit and hovering unblinking above the man's pillow. Culver's neck was thin and taut and flexing with the steady beat of his heart. Garvey swallowed and met the gaze, feeling as though he'd been cornered by a wolf in an alley. Upon my eyes are coins. Culver croaked. But they keep slipping off. The birds won't touch me. They won't finish me. A hand laid upon my head would burn. I am on fire. And I do not die. Okay then. Garvey said, rolling slowly into a sitting position. Age had withered him some, but not enough he couldn't move quick when he needed to, which was his intention if this thing should suddenly bear fangs and charge. All Culver did instead was reach toward Garvey's face with the stump of his severed arm. They call me with breathless words, he said, echoing up through the water. The water's gone. The echoes remain. Have you seen her? Have you seen Tahiti? I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Garvey said. He'd meant to sound threatening, but the words were like a kitten's whisper in the back of his throat. He realized then he wasn't all the way awake, but still dreaming. His flesh burned in the open sunlight, bones and muscles aching from being bent and bound, ankle to shoulder. Blood, black as oil, covered his chin and spilled from his mouth, spilled from the slit throat above that, which gushed and grinned where he'd been cut ear to ear. Garvey stumbled to his feet, watching Culver watch him, and left through the horse car for the relative freshness of the outside. Wind pulled his hair and the sun lay hot upon his face. The countryside had depleted to nothing. Rocks and shrubs and tatty little bushes with nothing growing on them. A place perfectly the opposite of what he was comfortable with. Mr. Garvey, Mr. Vaught said, trundling through the barely cleaned blood stain covering the deck and the wood stack. Garvey looked from the little man to the wood and the broad splash of blood running down it. It looked like a moon that had split and poured its innards out into space. The wood itself wasn't much to look at, mostly light brown bits of pine or oak or whatever, but the blood stain was a conundrum. The slabs making up the pile were not rested evenly throughout. In fact, they were fairly irregular on this face, but the blood stain was as full as if somebody had poured it in place with this side tipped up to the sky. There were no splashes, no little flicks or spurts or drips. The stain was thick, completely dark where it was and fully absent where it was not. He'd slit throats in his time, and this was not the image that work left. Mr. Garvey! Mr. Vaught nearly shouted. Garvey glared at him, but the little man was unperturbed. 
He pointed at the deck and then to the back of the train. We need help cleaning up this mess before the next delivery. Then find who made it, Garby snapped, turning to walk around the stack. Mr. Vaught slammed the metal bucket down on the deck and Garby stopped walking. Horse or blood, Mr. Vaught said, raising his voice. Your pick, but you will earn your keep today. Garvey took a breath and considered kicking the little snot off the edge of the platform, but decided against it. Little people were always more dangerous than you expected. He'd seen folks try working them over and wind up gut shot for their efforts. Blood, man, Garvey said in a low voice, snatching the brush from Mr. Vaught's hand. Even if he managed to weasel his way out of it, avoiding work would leave him with nowhere to go but back to his rack. The nice cars up front were off limits to his kind unless they were called that way, and he wouldn't be unless they intended to fire him. Tolliver's fat ass respected him as a capable driver, but the man's daughter had his number. Good for her, too, because she's just your type, a voice said in his head. Garvey froze hunched over with the bucket and watching Mr. Vaught's feet disappear through the horse car door. It wasn't any voice in his head. It was his own voice, but a much younger and wilder him. He could almost see the devil, standing at the head of a great black ship as wind whipped the hair off his face and let those dark eyes take in the waters. The swamp had just started rising around that boy murky waters warming just his ankles. How'd you do her? Young Garvey asked, turning and leaning against the banister. Low sunlight burned red off the dark waters behind him. Spray danced about his head, wreathing him in a bloody corona. His eyes were as empty as the space between starlight. Not black, not dark. Empty, devoid of anything. He lit a home roll and took a drag. Well, I keep her pretty for a long time, Garvey said matter-of-factly. Get her used to doing what she's told. Break her down. Let her know her place. Young Garvey smiled and pointed with the cigarette to the mid-decks, where Garvey found her. Moira Loeb, naked and filthy and burned to tan all up and down her body. She had a horse's yoke around her neck and was straining to pull a rusty plowhead through rocky muck. Somebody had put out her right eye, leaving a crusted, bloody tear to run down her cheek to her chin. Why'd you take the eye? I like them eyes, Garvey said. Oh, my my apologies, young Garvey replied. The girl screamed and fell to her knees clapping her hand over her empty socket. A second later, she was blinking and sobbing, the fresh tears washing away the dried blood. She looked at Garvey and gave him a broken smile. Thank you, Mr. Garvey, she said. He grunted and turned back to the younger version of himself, who was looking down off the railing. Garvey joined him and saw there was no water just endless, broken turf covered in stones and chunks of brick. His mother's house lay crooked and small beneath the bow, sunk into the hard earth. 
He could smell the fetid stink of it from here. You can have her if you want, if you want, young Garvey said. He exhaled smoke from his nose and eye sockets. Garvey ventured a look back at the naked Moira lobe. He found instead an empty deck and a hundred dangling bodies clapped up in scolds, brittles, and gibbets. Some hung only from their feet and had been stitched back together with rusted wire after their ankles gave. Few still had the strength to scream. Among that number he found Culver Penbrook, eyes wide and horrified. The boy was bound belly up atop the mainyard, his stomach laid open as though by teeth, and his entrails dipping in a lazy coil beside his right hip. He seemed blind, but was not. All All that that does does not not eat is is food, food. young Garvey said. The ship shifted underfoot and rocked Garvey sideways. He barely caught himself on the railing of the flatbed before falling off the train entirely. The train. He looked around and saw nothing but the Mojave Highlands. A desert, sure enough, but nothing like the dream he'd just had. The woodpile stood before him black as the empty eyes of the thing that had pretended to be the younger him. As he watched, this blackness seemed to flex and heave, and then it was receding like fog on glass until it had gone, leaving only the plain and ancient pine. Mr. Vaught made his way car to car, trying to get the train into something resembling presentability before their next stop. Tolliver was, of course, useless to the point of detriment. Thankfully, running all of a quarter mile with Mr. Vaught the night before had nearly killed the fat bastard, and now he was indefinitely disposed in his private cabin. The man's daughter, Moira, was similarly out of pocket, but this Mr. Vaught actually considered a detriment to his endeavors. Moira was remarkably capable when it came to organization and attention to detail. He wouldn't trust her with the most minute, specific tasks. She had a bad habit of overthinking things and distracting herself into non-completion. But as an overall manager, she was exemplary. She was also above five feet tall, which, despite her sex, gave her nigh infinite more credibility when speaking with the gorillas Tolliver had hired to secure the train and mind the horses. Unfortunately, Moira had been badly injured by those goddamn Pinkertons last night. Now she was so dead asleep he was almost worried she'd gone comatose when he'd checked on her, hoping she'd recovered enough to impress upon the drivers that work needed to be done. Really, he'd just like to talk to her for a while. Moira was a kind young woman and enjoyed listening to him ramble about the pains required to run this damn train. After last night, having a chat with Moira would have really helped him get through today. As it stood, here he was, reduced to shouting at men subordinate to him to have them do the most basic things. Fighting to get Miskel and that idiot Donald Bishop to dump the bodies off the train had been such a chore he just wanted to go to sleep when he was finished. But, of course, the train was still slicked with blood through three cars. It was so thick and tacky in places even the flies were getting caught in it. He'd managed to cajole Garvey and the others into scrubbing the mess away but God only knew what those men considered clean. Howdy there, fella. 
Sue said as Mr. Vaught walked into the sleeper cabin. Most of the security team had gone to sleep after the sun rose and no men were seen in pursuit. None of them had mentioned the missing two, the priest and the Native American man, save for the lanky Mexican. He'd merely remarked that he didn't think the priest was ready to die just yet. Whatever that meant, and then had gone back to pretending to be asleep. Hello, Miss Sue, Mr. Vaught said, tipping his head to her. Please don't call me Miss Anything, she said. She lay back on her rack, boots and socks off, and her jacket draped over her chest. Mr. Vaught looked her over and sighed. We have blankets and bedding, he said. I'm fine just like this, Sue replied. The damn perverts in this car here always trying to catch a peek at me. That's why I gotta sleep in my clothes. I believe we are alone in here, save for Mr. Vaught, the Mexican said from his bunk. He slept in his clothing as well, though he'd bundled himself up in the poncho down to his hips. Are you calling me the pervert? Sue chuckled to herself. If she fits, <laughs> she said, snorting like a pig. Mr. Vaught gave the two of them a horrified look. You are almost man enough to draw my attention, Miss Sue, the Mexican said. He tipped his hat up and winked at Mr. Vaught, who quickly looked away. But not quite. Your ass is too flat. <laughs> you son of a bitch, Sue said in a sardonic way, chuckling. Mr. Vaught shook his head and moved to leave these two to their fun, but Sue stopped him. Hey, hey, hey now, you got any baths up there in the good cars? Mr. Vaught sighed and tapped his foot, looking down and thinking. Oh, we have showers, but it's only for the executive car passengers, Mr. Vaught said, rubbing his thigh. The muscle was aching terribly from all the trips he'd taken up and down the car in the last few hours. Seeing Sue so stretched out and cozy made him want to take a nap. What does he mean, executive? The Mexican asked. Means fancy, Sue said. She snaked an arm out from beneath her jacket and grabbed Mr. Vaught's forearm. He saw the unbuttoned half of her shirt front fall loose and, despite not being able to see anything, started to blush. His eyes wandered to other parts of the car. Bullet holes in the topmost arch of the rear door black swirls on the unfinished wooden floor where bloody boot prints had been scrubbed away. How about you do me a favor and let me get in that shower? Sue asked. She tilted her head around to get a better look at his face and show off the lines of her neck. Her skin was brown as the crust on the bread his mother used to bake. Mr. Vaught swallowed and stepped away, breathing a sigh of relief when she let him go without a fight. Despite all the womanly softness of her appearance, her hands were rough as a man's. I'll see, he said. We're stopping in a small town at the end of the day. If there's no bus for sale there or <clears throat> suitable facilities for you, I'll let you use the front road shower. Mr. Love and his daughter will be staying with acquaintances there, so I doubt you'll run across them. Mighty kind of you, Mr. Vaught, Sue said, tucking herself back into bed. I'll let you watch me if you want. Mr. Vaught coughed and set down the fresh bucket he'd brought into the room, taking a few <coughs> steps around it to keep from tripping. 
Leave him alone, you harpy, the Mexican said, kicking his feet one over the other. Sue chuckled and pulled out a hand to touch the tip of her hat. Sorry for being rude, Mr. Vaughn, Sue said, the ghost of laughter in her voice. Offer stands, though, if you're interested. Oi, <clears throat> thank you, he said, grabbing his pail and heading for the next car before they could slow him anymore. The woman had flustered him more than he thought possible, but he pushed it out of his mind. Types like her were as rare and dangerous as a tiger. Or some sort of bird, he thought to himself. Even though they'd been at eye level, it wasn't hard for him to imagine her as some barn owl sitting above a great, moonlit door. Waiting, perhaps, for a little vole like Mr. Vaught to wander too far from cover. He shuddered and walked into the security car, expecting to be disappointed again. Instead, he found the place mostly spotless. The boy, Ducky, sat with his feet up on the table closest to the door, eyes lost in the endless expanse of the Mojave. A rifle rested muzzle up beside him, cradled between his shoulder and the window frame. The only other person in the car was Vicky, Blackwell's salesboy, who looked up from a pail of pink-brown water and smiled at Mr. Vaught. He tied rags around his trouser knees and had his sleeves rolled up like a barber. Hello, Mr. Vaught, he said. Is that for me? You can just leave it there by the door. Mr. Vaught, nonplussed by the sight of somebody actually doing some work, set the pail where Vicky was pointing. The young man looked up at Ducky. And mind that bucket if you have to get up, Ducky. He seemed to hiccup and quickly mumbled. Vicky, Vicky, Ducky. Ducky nodded without looking away from the window. His expression was grave enough Mr. Vaught was half worried he might have seen something, but time showed that wasn't the case. You look surprised, Mr. Vaught, Vicky said with a smile. He shook his head and frowned, taking in the mostly clean floors. What was stained was stained, but the worst of it seemed to have come up. I did my best, but, Lord, it was a mess in here. I'm sorry to say I added my own helping to it when I found a bit of a, <laughs> a skull there beneath the seat, but we're getting along just fine back here. Did the drivers come back and help with the bodies? Mr. Vaught asked, taking in the damage. The worst of the gore was gone, thank God. The sheer scale of the mess had made it impossible to see how the car itself had been harmed. The security team had left three bodies spread out through the cabin, brains and blood and other foulness leaking out of them like great, horrible balloons. Mr. Vaught had nearly been sick himself. Yes, sir, Vicky said, going back to scrubbing. His exertions showed in the little breaths punctuating his sentences. Though I must say they were quite rude to Mr. Jefferson here. He shook his head and mumbled under his breath in a much less charitable voice. Very rude. His next helping of water splashed well under the seats. How's that? Mr. Vaught asked, looking from Vicky to Ducky. The black boy rolled his head to the side so that his face was almost fully out the window. Way they do, he muttered. Same old words, same old jokes. Mr. Vaught ground his teeth looking at the floor. He took a deep breath. I'm sorry for their behavior, he said. 
I'll have some words with them. Oh, they've already been spoken to quite vividly, Vicky said, chuckling into the water. Mr. Jefferson was quite upset with them. Mr. Vaught felt himself go pale. He looked to Ducky again. What did you do? He asked. He planted the barrel of that rifle quite firmly in the dark head one's stomach and told him. Ducky looked at Vicky and the chubby boy blushed and went back to work, though he was still wearing a broad smile. It was clear he'd enjoyed Ducky's treatment of the men. Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Vaught insisted. Ducky adjusted the rifle so it was on his lap, barrel pointing out the broken window. He smiled to himself. I told him I already killed two white men today, and I was starting to get a taste for it, Ducky said, grinning at Mr. Vaught. It was not a kind smile. Said I'm looking forward to the next time. With that, he turned back to the distant blue-tinged hills and was silent. Mr. Vaught sighed and rubbed his temples. Ah, black hair. That would be Mr. Bishop, I believe. He said, mostly to himself. Bishop, worship, worship, Bishop, Vicky said. Oh, God damn it. I understand. They probably earned that treatment, Mr. Jefferson. But if you could please avoid pointing guns at other passengers, I would very much appreciate it, Mr. Vaught said, picking through his words carefully. It almost felt like an apology to himself for not having pointed guns at the gorillas in the driving compartment in his own time. No promises, Ducky said in a low voice. Elam and the priest caught the train around midday, watching as Ducky sprinted toward the engine to have it stop. It didn't, of course merely slowed to a crawl as the entire crew came outside to watch Elam and then the priest be dragged aboard. Even Tolliver trundled out to see the commotion, pushing through the crowd to clap the men on the back and offer his sincerest apologies that they couldn't wait for them. No apologies necessary, the priest said. That's the job. We managed fine enough. That's the job, Tolliver repeated suddenly invigorated and looking around at his drivers and a few faces Elam hadn't seen. The rest of you layabouts could take a lesson from these men. Exceptional work ethic, exceptional! The priest laughed off the compliments with a smile and Elam merely nodded. Tolliver's words had thrown a damper on the celebration and it soon ended. The others wandered back to their work or rest or whatever they were getting up to at the moment. But Elam's eyes weren't for the train or the priest or anything else. He could only see his shaggy black horse still sprinting alongside the train, its eyes locked on Elam's as though it was sorry to see him go, as though it was seeing him off and not the other way around. He felt something hot on his cheek and realized he was crying. Fucking shit, he mumbled, wiping his face roughly with his forearm. Are you okay? The priest asked, putting a hand on Elam's shoulder. The young accountant shrugged it off, taking a few breaths and stepping away to gather himself. I need to go to sleep, he finally said, turning to the priest but not looking at him. I'm going to sleep. 
The older man blinked and then nodded, stepping out the way as Elam headed through the horse car toward bed. Watching the door shut behind the boy made a familiar old cloud storm up over the priest's heart. He sighed and bit his lip and stared off into the Mojave, wondering if he could tell where they were just by the mountains he could see. He couldn't quite pin it down, but he was fairly sure they were northeast of Tahoe. May as well just say west of the Mississippi, you old goat. He mumbled to himself, folding his arms over the railing and watching the dust rise behind the train. The horses had vanished into the cloud there and he hoped to God the poor creatures would find their way over to the river before the sun set and the heat got to them. They were good horses. Fine animals, but animals all the same, an old voice said in his head. The priest spun, gun free of the holster inside his coat and aimed at the innocuous pile of wood filling most of the flatbed. He'd almost fired into it. Only a heavy trigger and half a second of thinking had kept him from doing so. The hammer on the old sixer hung at half-mast, just shy of the catch. The priest took several long breaths, looked side to side, and lowered the hammer and the gun carefully. All he could see was the wood, somehow entirely motionless on the flatbed. Even the most jarring bump in the tracks couldn't make a single plank so much as wobble. He took a step forward and raised his hand to it, thinking of a time many years ago when he'd last heard that voice. Thinking about how he might be able to sleep some nights if he'd pulled this trigger the last time he'd heard it. And there was something off about the wood pile. Aside from the motionlessness of it, the color of the planks seemed wrong. They'd been brown and golden earlier, some almost ghostly pale, but all colors typical of oak and pine. Now they seemed dark, and unevenly so, as though the grain had thickened to take up more of each board than naturally possible. Looking closer, he realized he could see the grain spreading, or, no, not the grain, but something inside those loops and knots and whirls, something no less black and viscous than oil. What you did was God's work. The Lord's good work milled over, a voice said. No shame in that. The scar on his cheek burned white hot. Hot as the day they'd branded him with his own crucifix. The iron cross so bright it had singed off his eyebrow and some of his hair. He smelled it, too, his flesh and hair burning. He could hear the crackle of his flesh blistering. Keep your head up. Mildover Kane jumped back, bumping into the railing hard enough it creaked behind him. His free hand touched the scar, feeling nothing but the same old lumps. The sting remained, but it was no different than the phantom pain he often felt in the mass of warped tissue. A long, lingering reminder of the nerve damage he'd suffered and the sins he'd always carry. Quit your whining, Mildover, the voice said and this time it had perfected his old commander's derisive, insulting tone. The hateful indifference. This is God's country. There was no doubt these feelings were coming from the wood, which had become as empty black as the night sky in the city. Mildover took a breath and adjusted his coat and hat. 
Then he turned and walked away, trying not to cringe as the hacking, spit-filled laughter of Brigadier General Benson Grimley carried him off the platform and through the train. (laughs) 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 Next time on Sin Carriers... With the first quarter of our journey in the books, we see the nature of our travelers truly coalescing. With tensions growing, certain members of the crew take it upon themselves to further sow distrust between the security crew and the drivers. In the forward car, Vasily shares the secret of how he miraculously survived the gunshot with Moira, further cementing their relationship. All the while, the overworked Mr. Vaught does his best to continue cleaning the remaining traces of blood from the car and finds it difficult to muster help. In the back of the train, Gatto shows an interest in Sue's future that reveals he might know more about her than she knows about herself. In the driver's car, the men talk at a distance about the events surrounding the Pinkerton ambush. A bit of rudeness to somebody passing through their car leads to an altercation, and possibly bloodshed. In the front of the train, instructions arrive for Tolliver in the form of an invitation to a ball at their next stop. Another of his father's old business associates who seems to want not just the promised cargo, but a closer look at Tolliver's daughter. Will rising tensions amongst the crew end in violence, or will greater danger unite them against a common foe? Are the pasts of these outlaws killers and renegades old hat, or will they find no steam train can outrun a destined reunion? And what will come of this unholy union between the rider and the must? You may find the answers to these questions and more on Episode 7 of Sin Carriers. Invitations. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell in Louisville, Kentucky. Audio processing, mastering, and original foley provided by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2022, WSF Productions, LLC.